following the battle for Egypt and the British military's first major victory in 1942, Winston Churchill told the people of Great Britain, now is not the end, it is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. The church calendar has always been an enigma to me. Um, It's an enigma because it's intended to help us teach the story of the Bible, but it does so in such a disjointed and convoluted way. It, it, it seems like you're trying to tell a story to someone, and you start in the middle. <laughs> and then you go to uh, the middle of the middle, and then you go to the beginning of the middle, and then you go back to the beginning, and sometimes you get to the end. You hardly ever get to tell it in the way that we would normally tell a story. Um, I think the reasons for this are many, but primarily because of this, that the Christian religion... Um, displaced pagan religions. And when it did so, it dislodged their holidays and replaced them with baptized versions of the same. And so pagan festivals like uh, the winter solstice that celebrated the the return of the light, you know, as, as days started to get longer once again, the return of the light, it was natural that Christians baptized that holiday and turn it into Christmas. Jesus, the light of the world. I mean, it was a natural and seamless kind of transition. And then, of course, uh, with, the, um, with spring came the spring equinox, and with it, new life and hope for new life and, and rebirth. And, and, of course, what would the church do but, but use the holiday of Easter and talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? But in doing so, it kind of messes up the, the, the sequence of events just a little bit. Some people get nervous about using the, the former pagan names, like people who won't even say the word Easter because it was associated with a pagan holiday. But I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful that Christians took people where they were. This is the heart of mission and evangelism. They took people where they were and very gently and very slowly transformed the meaning of their holidays until at such a point as they forgot about the origins and only remember the meaning that the Christian holiday brought. It's everything that's good about mission and evangelism. But still, it's a bit odd on how you have to preach the calendar because it tells the narrative of the Bible in what I think is a bit of a clumsy um, and sometimes disjointed way. And so it is with Palm Sunday. It's not the beginning of the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, or not the end, end of the story, not the beginning of the end, but maybe it is perhaps the end of the beginning. So we jump into it in a sort of the middle of the way. A casual awareness of Palm Sunday tells people, hey, you know what, I think it's getting close to Easter, you know, there's a a week off, you know. And and a more, um, you know, kind of aware person might say, ooh, it's Palm Sunday, but you don't get to Easter without Good Friday. And I think even a deeper awareness of Holy Week is it's Palm Sunday, Easter's coming, But this whole week is going to be a bit bumpy. (laughs) Waters are a bit choppy as we go through Holy Week. There's this great writer, Annie Dillard. She wrote in the 60s quite a bit. And she wrote this. um, She says, it's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. (laughs) Ushers Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. It's a dangerous thing to come to church, to come into the presence of the living God. And I sort of feel like that's the way I look at Holy Week as a clergyman. It's about to be a bumpy week ahead. What about Palm Sunday? What does Palm Sunday do? 
It's certainly more than a reminder that we need to get to the store this week and buy some fake grass and chocolate bunnies and Easter egg dye kits, right? I mean, it's more than that. Of course it's more than that. I think Palm Sunday is about three simultaneous realities, more than three, but just three that I want to give you today. The first reality is that Palm Sunday brings us to the climax of Israel's story. Palm Sunday is the climax of Israel's story. The Bible is not a narrative about God creating a beautiful world, humans messing it up, God tried to fix it, we messed it up more, so he tried again and got it right. That is not the narrative of the Bible. It's not the narrative of the the Old Testament. Jesus is not God's answer to cleaning up the mess that Israel made. The Old Testament is the story of Israel. It's a story that's been misunderstood and I think sometimes uh, misappropriated by people who wanted to tell a different story. The Third Reich comes to mind in something like this. It's not the biblical narrative. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is the son of Isaac. He is the son of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Jesus is the son of David. Let me put it in modern-day parlance. Jesus was a Jew, a through-and-through Jewish person. He was as Jewish as Albert Einstein, as Yitzhak Rabin, as Woody Allen. He was a Jew, through and through. And his story is the climax of Israel's story. He is saying, get ready to Israel, what we've waited for has arrived. That he identifies with the people of Israel. And they get it. Because guess what? They were all Jews too. If you read the story of the new Jesus coming in, as I just did in a minute, in, in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you see that the people understand it. They get it. They take off their outer garments, well, like a cloak that they would wear over top of their, uh, uh, you know, kind of robe that they would wear. They'd have a, a, a cloak as a second layer. They took those off and threw them on the donkey that Jesus was about to ride on. They threw them out in the street in front of him to make like a makeshift red carpet. They realized that he was coming as their weighted Messiah. They started waving palm branches. This is what we've waited for. This is whom we've been waiting for. We we are ready. When God told Abraham that through him, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed, Palm Sunday is the beginning of that happening. When God told David he would build for him a dynasty that would go on into eternity, this is it. When Isaiah says this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall bear his fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall be upon him. This is he, the Lord Jesus, coming as the climax of Israel's story. But he also comes as God's coming king. He is the the, the story of God's kingdom coming into into the world. The Old Testament tells a story about, begins with a family. It actually just begins with a guy, Abraham who's married to a a woman, Sarah. And they have one problem. They can't have children. And God comes to them and says to them, your descendants are going to be more numerous than the the grains of sand on the beach or the stars in the sky. You're going to have so many children. And they can't even have one child. And so this promise that that God delivers on, the descendants, become a family. And that family becomes a tribe. 
And that tribe becomes 12. And that 12 tribes become a nation and a kingdom. And things went really well for a while. I mean, they got, they were wealthy and they were powerful and borders were expanding. Under David and Solomon, never had Israel experienced such goodness and such, such, such wealth and abundance. And you know what happened? You know what happens when we get wealthy and comfortable? Forget God. Push God to the back burner. This is what Israel does. And God sends preachers as he always does. The preachers are called prophets in the Old Testament. And the prophets would say over and over again, turn around, stop doing this, go back, remember the, remember the covenant, return to the Lord. But the people didn't. And the Old Testament ends with a story about Israel going into exile, being released but coming home and being under the thumb of a foreign government. Jesus' ride into Jerusalem says that is all over. The exile is over. It's time for the kingdom to be restored. The kingdom to be restored in this day and age. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is at hand. But if you've heard me say anything, you, you probably picked up on the language. It's political. If Jesus is king, then Caesar is not. If Jesus is king, Herod is not. If Jesus is king... Pilate has no authority. He's about to institute the kingdom. That's why he comes riding in to Jerusalem the way he does. But then there's this the bit about the, um, the, the ride itself. I mean, why ride at all, to be honest with you? And if you're going to ride, why ride on a donkey? Yeah? I mean, it sort of seems like like he's pulling up in a Pinto, you know, like a 74 Pinto, you know. This is, you're, you're really not picking the right car. You could do better with this. But why ride at all? You know, Jesus has been walking. He's been walking over a 100 miles. It was a long journey for Capernaum down to Jerusalem. And they walked by. Nobody rode. There's never any mention of riding in the New Testament. They walked. Of course they walked. That's how people got around. And here he is at, at, at Bethany, one mile, the very last mile. I mean, do you think he got there and was like, I just can't take it anymore, you know? Uh, this is just too far. I, I need a ride. No, of course not. In, in fact, the last mile is the glorious mile. Um, you remember perhaps last summer uh, I went to um, this pilgrimage and all the way to Jerusalem, but along the way I went to Spain and, and was going to travel 100 kilometers that's 60 miles, okay? And on day one, I, wa I was going to do this in four days. Day one, I hiked 30 miles, which I thought was really great, except that when I got there, my feet were bleeding because I hadn't stopped to take rest and I hadn't taken off my shoes and dried my feet out and all that sort of. I just kept going and going and going. And so I get there to the first stop. I had these, you know, these, four, these three stops and then I was going to be in Santiago, I get to the first one and my feet are literally like dripping with blood and I can't even stand on them. So I, the next day I have to get up and take a bus to my second stop because I can't hardly walk. And the third day I had to do the same. And on the fourth day I had 10 miles left. And you probably remember the story. I took um, tissue and I wrapped them around my, my feet and duct tape and I duct taped them up. And, you know, we have a saying in my house, if you can't duck it, you chuck it. Anyway, so I ducked them up, and um, I, I stuck my feet in my shoes and pulled them on real tight. 
and walk the last 10 miles. As I got to the city, I'm in excruciating pain. But then I see the cathedral. I see this, this cross jutting up out of the sky. And I get energy. Suddenly I had this, oh, I can do this, you know. And, and I start moving quicker, you know. And I, can, I get to the church and, and I, was, uh, you know, I was just thrilled. When you get to the end of the journey, you don't lose heart. You gain heart. You gain strength. You gain energy. Jesus is not riding into Jerusalem because he's tired. He's riding in to make a political statement. And the type of animal that he's riding on is not an ignoble animal. It is a glorious one. It represents kingdom and it represents a kingdom of peace. When Alexander the Great rode into Jerusalem, he rode in on his horse, a black stallion. And Jerusalem was so terrified, they opened the gates and gave him the city without a fight. When Antiochus Epiphanes came to Jerusalem, he came with chariots and horses. Even when Judas Maccabeus, a Jew who was liberating Jerusalem, came, he rode in on a horse, a sign of power and authority, a sign of one who's ready to fight for what he, he believes in. But when Jesus arrives... He comes on the back of a donkey, a symbol of peace. N.T. Wright says, um, when God's kingdom comes, he doesn't send in the tanks. Zechariah writes this, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's a symbol of that this kingdom that Jesus brings is a kingdom of peace. Now, the church has, um, has not done all these things right. We've not done a good job applying the, the realities of Palm Sunday. At times, we've been better than others, but usually we foul it up somewhere along the way. Usually, it's because we have not understood the Bible. We haven't understood the biblical message. We haven't understood Israel's story. We haven't understood our story. The Apostle Paul tries to straighten things out, in the book of Romans, he writes this long narrative about, uh, about basically a man planting a tree. The tree grows and flourishes. It stops flourishing. And so the man saws the tree down and he grafts into it a wild tree. So that the one tree has become new and it begins to flourish once again. See, here's the story. That those who are Jews by birth have been part of God's original plan. But those who have not, who have believed in Jesus Christ, have been grafted into Israel. Israel is not being grafted into the church, it's the other way around. That we have become part of the Israel of God. We now are God's people, Israel. The second thing is, is that we've often thought about the kingdom of God as some immaterial spirit world. It's where we go when we die. We all get to heaven. What a day that will be. You know, it's going to be all rejoicing. Um, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. Any Southerners here? When I die, <laughs> by and by, I'll fly away. You know, this is it. Just get me out of this body and get me to this immaterial heaven. That is not what Jesus means by the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a political reality. And it is in the here and now. Just like our world has laws, we must obey. You know, you... You're not allowed to steal. You're not allowed to kill. You're not allowed to speed. God's kingdom has laws. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are the gentle, the merciful, the justice seekers, the peacemakers. These are the the, the ways of the kingdom. This is the, the laws. They're positive, not negative. And if God is king, then Caesar is not. And that means that in our world, too. If God is king, then Caesar is not. And if it meant that to people who lived under Roman rule, it means that to people who live under the rule of the, of the nations of the world now. That God is king. And that means this. That if you've been wronged and you live under the rule of God, what do you do? You forgive. That's right. And if you're defrauded and you live under the rule of God, you know what that means? You give it as a gift. If you live under the rule of God, you cannot love money. You cannot love God in money. It is that simple. You simply must live by a different way, a different standard. Third, this is the kingdom of peace. Humans love war. We love it. We love war machines. We love warring with one another. And sometimes people pride themselves on not being um, owners of warring machines, use their words as weapons. Do you know the word sarcasm means to tear the flesh? It's a metaphor that we use words in ways that hurt so badly it's like tearing flesh off one another. Jesus makes this provocative act. He shows up where he knows the king's representative lives. (laughs) You know, Pilate lives in Jerusalem. It's a really small city. And Jesus shows up, you know, pretending to be a king. This is going to start a fight. There's no question about it. But how's he going to fight? Or is he going to fight? What does he tell Pilate? If my kingdom were this world, then my servants would fight. But they don't, because it's not. As I said, I think along the way, the church has really messed up at a lot of these three realities that Paul and Sunday brings to our attention. But we've often gotten things right, too. And we shouldn't forget that. The world knows what hospitals are because Christians picked up sick people and started caring for them. The world knows what universities are because Christians believe that a mind was something that, needed, that God had given us and it should, be, it should be cultivated and developed and that thinking and, all, and truth is all God's truth. The church knows today what it means to care for orphans and widows because Christians went into the dumps and picked up children who were thrown and discarded and left to die. In the ancient Roman world, this is an aside, this cost you no extra today. Um, in the ancient Roman world, uh, there's, a, there's some letters that have been recovered. One is from a soldier who writes home to his wife. He knows that she's pregnant. He tells her when she delivers the baby, if it is a boy, keep him and name him such and such. But if it is a girl, expose her. That means she's to take her to the city dump and throw her on the garbage. And Christians went into those areas and they picked up those little girls and they raised them. And they became an army of women who were evangelists and uh, who transformed the ancient world. We have taken care of poor, the poor people of this world. We have taken care of refugees. When we are at our best, we really do get it right. And so here's the fact. We've got a bumpy week ahead of us. <laughs> We've got a bumpy life ahead of us. It's not the end. 
Palm Sunday is not the end. It's not the beginning of the end. But it could be the end of the beginning. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.